All right, everybody. Hey, welcome to New Life. How many guys are excited to be at church today? Come on, let me hear you. Seriously, let me hear you. Yeah. Man, I don't know about you guys, but I'm just excited for a Sunday that doesn't involve snow. Anybody else with me? Right on, because I get to see your, your nice smiley faces here at the Carney campus. Dave gets to see your nice smiley faces at the North Platte campus. Because that way, otherwise, I just have to stare into this camera and know that you're on the other side of the camera, you know, sitting at your house in your pajamas with your hair all jacked up with a cup of coffee worshiping with us. And I get a little jealous. Like, I might want to join you, right? But I can't. So thank you so much for being here today and worshiping with us. However, I do need to say, I want to say a big welcome to everybody worshiping with us online as well, as well. So how many guys were at our comedy event, whether it was at North Platte, we had a big Christmas party there with a comedy event, or we had a comedy event here at our Carney campus. How many guys were at it last night? <laughs> yeah. Man, my head actually right here actually still hurts just a little bit from laughing so hard, laughing so hard. It was an unbelievable night. Three comedians, wonderful, three incredible Christian men that just brought some comedy that was so much fun. It brought so much joy to the holidays, didn't it? It brought so much joy to Christmas. I mean, that's what it did for me. It was so much fun. I was at the doors uh, here at our Carnegie campus greeting people as they left, and I, I met uh, a couple. And the couple, uh, they've, they've uh, never met me. And she sticks out her hand. She's like, man, it's so good to meet you in person. And shakes my hand. My whole body's like shaking, right? And she goes, I worship with you guys online. That's all I've ever done. That's all I've ever done. And I go, wow, well, man, it's, a, it's an honor to meet you as well, right? Like that. And, um, and then she says, she says this to me. She goes, yeah, every Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, I watch you online. And then I turn it around and I watch eFree online. And I'm like... I'm, and this goes, and I'm keeping score. And I go, what? Like, what? <laughs> like, what's the score and who's winning, right? And we just kind of joked like a little bit about that. So um, I do need to say a big hello to whoever you are because you didn't give me your name. So mystery couple who walked out the door, glad to have you. Um, and no, I know we're not keeping score, but if you can, just put one in the new life box. Okay, there you go. <laughs> we're not keeping score. I got it, but if you could. Okay, all right. There you go. Um, so anyways, guys, today, this is the second week in our, uh, our current teaching series. We just simply entitled it, They Call Him. And They Call Him comes out of <clears throat> the Old Testament, out of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, I want to read it with you because this is the basically, it's the premise. It's the key scripture of this entire teaching series. So would you read this scripture with me? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, <clears throat> Prince of Peace. Right. So in this passage, this passage is a prophetic passage. It was spoken about Jesus who had come and, and be born to a virgin 800 years before the event ever took place. And it was, a, it was a prophecy that was given to the people of that day about the Messiah, Jesus, who was to come hundreds of years later, but it was given to them at that time to bring hope to their life. 
Just like Christmas should bring hope to your life. Every single time we come around to it. I think it's, it's God's provision for us. Every 12 months we have to come back to Christmas to stir hope in our hearts of what we're really doing on this earth and that God loved the world so much that he sent his son into the world. Amen? Last week we talked about these names that Jesus would be called. Basically, it's these names that Jesus would live out. Right? We know that the, the angel through the father, gave to Mary the name that she was to name the baby. Name the baby Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 gives us basically the essence behind all of that. So like why call him Jesus? Like what does it mean to you, Father, that you call him Jesus? And here is the very essence of it, what Jesus is now going to live out and display for us in the very character and the nature of who God is. And we started with the word wonderful. And we, dis- we discovered that the word wonderful, it-, it literally meant to be indescribable. Like Isaiah uses the word wonderful because he doesn't have any other words to use. That this word wonderful would then stir in awe inside of us. And then we looked at the life of Jesus and we said, evidently, yes, he is indescribable and he does stir in awe in us. Like he starts with a virgin birth. He ends with the resurrection from the dead and the ascension back into heaven while his disciples are actually watching. That's almost indescribable in in the essence of how many words can you put together to really understand it in its totality, right? And so that made Jesus wonderful, this awe of who he is. Uh, Then we looked at the fact that he's also called counselor. And uh, we, we know that that word means that one who listens intently, but one who also gives wise advice. And we see in Jesus, even in his teaching, he teaches us how to pray to the Father. Meaning that the Father wants to hear you and me. Why would Jesus teach us how to pray if the Father doesn't want to hear us? So the counselor, he, he wants to hear us. And if we, if we seek him through prayer, then he is wanting to give us wise advice as a great counselor. Today we're going to look at, in week two, we're going to look at the next name that's given to Jesus. And that next name is what? Mighty God, mighty God. Now, when we look at the statement, mighty God, right? There's two words. Which word stands out as the most important word of the two to you? God, right? Because look, there's a lot of things that could be mighty, but he's referred to as mighty God. So if he's not God, then the word mighty doesn't even matter anymore, right? And so the very first thing we want to look at today is Jesus is God. Now, as soon as I say that, a number of you are going to say, oh, I already know that, Jeff. I, I got that already. Good. This message is for, for you, but it's, it's first and foremost for another group of people. It's for a group of people that right now they question whether Jesus is God. Okay? Now, if you're somebody with me that already believes that Jesus is God, Great. Awesome. Congratulations. That's the right answer. So what should you be doing during this sermon today? You should get out some paper, a pen. You should look at your version. You should hit save right now on the notes because every scripture I'm going to give you today, somebody in your life needs to hear. And God put you in their life so that you would be the one to tell them. So if you believe that Jesus is God, could you defend that? That's my big question for you right now. For those of you who believe that Jesus is God, Could you defend it? If I put you on trial right now and you were the lawyer that had to make the case for it, what case would you make biblically? Could you make a case biblically? 
Because if you can't, then today is for you. You need to be writing these down, paying attention. You need to get these kind of scriptures into your heart. I'm only going to give you like a, a sampling of them, but they're going to help you drive you into God's word to find the rest of them. Because somebody in your life, somebody in your life doesn't believe that Jesus is God. And if we can't land there, we can't land on anything else that's going to be life-giving. So a recent uh, report was done by the Pew Research Group. Sometimes their reports are a little difficult to understand, but this one was easy to understand. And they were asking the question, do you believe in God? Here's what we found out about America, right? Do you believe in God or not? 80% of Americans said yes. 19% said no. That's not really where the truth lies. I mean, when you really boil this down, here's what you begin to find out. You begin to find out that of the 80%, 56% say that they believe in God, the God of the Bible, okay? But then another 23% believe that there's just a higher power. So they say basically, there is a God. I'm not sure who he is. I'm gonna have to put him into the classification of higher power. Here's what's interesting about the higher power category though. You see that the total is 33% because there's 9% of the people that instantaneously, once they heard the question, do you believe in God? Like the God word in and of itself just caused them to shut off. But when the the drill down happened and the second and third question came, oh, lo and behold, come to find out, even those who said, no, I don't believe in God, 9% of them said, but I do believe in some kind of higher power. So here's what we have in America right now. We've got 10% of people that are atheistic in nature, atheistic in their mindset. I know that some of you are here, you're listening to us, you're here at our Carney campus, you're here at our North Platte campus, you're watching online today. Thank you so much for being a part of New Life Church. Thank you for being on the journey, even though you might be part of that 10%. And this should be a safe place for you to be in that 10% as long as you're going, man, I wanna ask the questions to find out who really is God. We welcome you here. But I also know there's a large group of you in this 33 percentile that you believe in God, but you're just not sure what his name is. And again, I want to say to you, this is a safe place to be. We love you right where you're at, and we're going to do anything and everything we can in our power to help you continue this spiritual journey to get to the center of God's will, truly understanding who he really is. Now, here's the dangerous part. The dangerous part's over here. It's the 56%. Because 56% of Americans say, I believe in the God of the Bible. Now, look, that means this. We live in a country that's pretty safe for you to walk out onto the streets, be on a video camera, be famous, and to say something that most people in America aren't going to have a single beef with, and that's this, I believe in God. That's pretty safe. Let me tell you where it's not safe and where it's becoming increasingly, you know, unpopular to say is this, that Jesus is God and that Jesus is the God of the Bible. This is what I know as a fact. I just don't have the number. How many of the 56% actually believe that Jesus is the God of the Bible? I'm going to say that 56 number is going to dive deep. It's going to be a, it's going to be a much lower number, right? If you ask the question again, you believe in God, the God of the Bible. Yeah, I do. Why? Because I believe in God and I believe the Bible and I put the two together. Therefore, I got the God of the Bible. But what about Jesus? See, that's the delineation. That's where things start breaking down. Is Jesus God? 
And that's the question that we have to get to today because in Christianity, we see that God is the supreme creator of all things, that he's equal to none, that he is the one true living God. And we understand, right? We understand God to be three distinct roles. We understand God to be three distinct roles unified together as one. So we call that the Trinity, three in one. Now you're not gonna find the word Trinity in the Bible. But you will find the inference of Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all wrapped up together in, as one, all right? And that's how we understand and we see God. And you see that multiple different times in the Bible, in multiple different places, we see the Trinity being communicated. Let me take you to one of those places. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and this is what he says in John chapter 14. And I just want you to take one hand with me make a closed fist, and as we walk through these three different names, I want you just to bring, bring your fingers up, one, two, three, okay? So, and I, I being who? Jesus, there's one. I, Jesus, will ask the Father, two, right? And he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit wrapped up into one, all fulfilling the Godhead, all of them equally God. And, but here's the deal. The prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 is specifically talking about God the Son, God the Son. And God the Son becoming flesh the incarnation of God, God, the, the supreme God, God of all gods, Lord of all lords, King of all kings, becoming flesh, becoming Emmanuel, becoming God with us. Saying these words that Jesus is fully God, but yet that he took the frame of humanity. So I just want to, I just want to like, you know, warn you today, like never bring Jesus down to just a human level. Never bring Jesus down to the, the terms that are popular today where Jesus is just a good teacher. He's just another good prophet. To say those things are to isolate Jesus out from the Godhead and to also say that Jesus is not the God of the Bible. And I'm telling you right now, the culture in which we live in, that's the permeating idea. The permeating idea is, sure, yeah, the Bible, it's a great book. Jesus, though, however, is not God. And once you separate Jesus from being God, it's like you take the chasm between man and God and you make it impossible for man to get from here to God. Because imperfect man doesn't get to perfect God except through the bridge called Christ. So you can't take Christ out. Christ is not just another good prophet or teacher. Jesus is God and he's fully God. And just because, look, just because you can't understand how God, creator of the universe, maybe can fully be both God and man at the same time does not make it false. Just because you can't wrap your head around it, just because you can't put all the pieces together, just because you can't figure it all out doesn't make it false. In fact, faith is the essential element. It's the essential quality of every Christ follower. There has to be a faith, there has to be a component in there that says, Jesus is God, I believe that. I believe it. And I believe it, why? Well, I believe it by faith alone, that he said it, therefore it's true, but also I can look into the Bible and I can find multiple places that confirm it. 
In fact, I want to show you a couple places. This is just a couple of verses that communicate that Jesus is fully God. But you can find these kind of scriptures all over the place. Here's Colossians. Let me show you this one. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. First and foremost, right off the bat, here's what it's not saying. It's not saying that Jesus is part God. It's not saying that Jesus is just a part of God. It said that Jesus, right, the Christ, he is the fullness. He is the fullness of God. He is all that God is. You know what that means then? That means this, that if you want to see who God really is, look at Jesus. He's the fullness of him. He's not just a part. He's not 90%. He's not 99.9%. He is all of it. That means Jesus bears every quality that God has. And he lived it out before us. And if you want to see it, go back to the Bible and start reading it and looking at it. But let me show you one more in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. It says the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. A couple of key things to look at in this passage. Right? The son, he does a couple of things. He expresses the very character of God. The very character of God. What that means if you want to know who God really is, what makes him tick? What does he, how does he think? How does he process things? What's important to him? What does this character look like? Then it says this. You can basically just look at Jesus. Look at how Jesus loved people, and you'll find the character of God. Look at how Jesus lived, and you'll find the character of God. Right? Look, look at any part of Jesus. Look at how Jesus taught. Look at the words that he said, and you'll find the very essence, the character of God. Well, people are like, well, God's mysterious. Like, how do I even know him? How do I wrap my head around him? Where do I even find him? He's invisible. No, he became visible in the incarnation of Christ. And in Christ, you find the very essence, every character, quality, and nature of who God is wrapped up right here in, in history books and in the holy book, the Bible, accurate in every single word. So if you want to know him, then go back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and listen to him. But I'm afraid that all too often, many of us are just taking the express version. We would rather have like the YouTube version. Just give me the highlights. I just want to know the highlights. My life's too busy. And if you're just trying to go for the highlights, you'll never know the character and the nature of God because you aren't going to look at Jesus closely enough. But there was a second thing that the son was doing. The son, he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. He sustains everything everything. Like, I wonder to myself, if you and I sat down with God face to face and we had a conversation and the word everything got thrown out onto the table and you were asked to define the word everything, how would you define it? Would you define the word everything like the normal human would do? Everything that you can think of? Everything you can wrap your head and your heart around? Everything that you can control? then how would God define the word everything? Wouldn't he define the word everything down to things that you and me, it takes, you know, powerful microscopes to even see and to discern? 
It would take powerful telescopes to look out, you know, into the outer space to even try to get a glimpse of. Wouldn't he be defining everything by all the small little elements that all go together to make this universe that you and me don't even know about right now? That's how he would define everything. And then this is what it says about Jesus, powerful, mighty God. It says he sustains it. He doesn't just create it. Some people think that God created everything and then he just kind of walked away into some kind of cave and hides out and lets all of this creation just do its thing until it comes to an end. And that God is somewhat absent from his creation. This verse tells us just the opposite. That God's not absent from it. He's sustaining it. He's, he's the one who's got the earth in his hand moving it around the sun. He's got the, the moon moving it around the earth. He's got the bolts of light coming from the sun like, like javelins from his hand, throwing them towards the earth. He sustains it. He's the one who causes the fuel for the sun to continue to burn, and so on and so forth. He sustains it. What in the world do you and I sustain? Can we sustain anything even close to that? We have a hard time sustaining relationships. I have a hard time sustaining my weight. Anybody else with me? We have a hard time sustaining things. Like some of us can sustain certain things and not others. Like all of us drive cars, okay? We all drive cars. Let's use that one as an example. Some of us are better at sustaining the car than others. Like I, I'm fairly decent at sustaining the car, right? So I drive my car, Kim drives her car. My wife is amazing at sustaining certain things. It's not the car. Because when I get into the car, I'm like, why is it pulling to this side? Why is the tire low? Why is the engine light on? And my wife will be like, I didn't even notice that. (laughs) But she's amazing at sustaining other things. So when we look at scriptures like this, guys, we read over stuff, but we, we, we rarely stop to dissect it to truly understand the authority that it's talking about. This verse is telling us that the authority of God is Jesus, that Jesus created everything, and by him, he sustains it all. And if he can do that, what can he sustain in your life? And because he is the sustainer of all things, and he is God, now, now we can call him mighty God. If you don't get Jesus being God, sustainer of all things, the word mighty means nothing. So the second part that Isaiah is talking about, though, is the word mighty. We established Jesus as God, now let's call him mighty. Mighty is is simply this. The word literally would mean a strong, prevailing, or a conquering hero. So Isaiah is trying to drive home this point that God is strong, that God is a conqueror, and that God is a hero. So I wondered to myself, like, who is a hero to you? Who's a hero to you? Would a hero be maybe a parent, a grandparent, a spouse? Maybe another family member is a hero to you. It could be other people of like authority and power, like a doctor. It could be a hero to you because maybe they, they helped you find healing from you know, whatever sickness it was you were dealing with. Or uh, it could be a police officer. They saved your life in some crazy situation. 
might be a judge because a judge, you know, made a decision in your favor at just the right time and it was critical for you and that person became your hero. It might be, a, might be a, like a military uh, leader of some, some sorts or a veteran of some kind, right? I mean, we all have different people that we might define as heroes, but heroes have filled our imagination from the time of comic books to all the movies. Like, I just wanna take a poll really quick. How many of you guys have ever read um, a comic book about a hero? You know, come on, just let me see, okay. How, okay. how many of you guys have ever watched a movie about a comic book hero? <laughs> yeah, it's really different, the age we live in right now, isn't it? Yeah, so we've all watched these and they all portray this person with this amazing gift that's there to save the day and we love the ending because the earth is saved one more time from some alien being that's going to come and wipe us off the, uh, well not wipe us off the face of the earth, but wipe the earth off the face of the universe. And they save the day. And this hero is always presented as larger than life, right? Larger than life. Did you know that's the way God the Father wants you to see Jesus? He wants you to see Jesus larger than life, and he wants you to see Jesus as your hero. Therefore, he says he will be called hero God, strong God, mighty God. God the Father wants you to see Jesus as your ultimate hero, the one who sustains everything by his mighty power, like we just talked about. The one who came knowing that he would experience human pain and human death. He wants you to see him as your ultimate hero. The one who came so that we could clearly see the character and the nature of God. Or the one who paid the price for the penalty of your sin. Or the one who took the sting out of death to be absent from this body, to be present with Christ for the believer like Paul talks about. Or he wants you to see Jesus as your ultimate hero, the one who rose from the dead and he's coming back again for you soon. Jesus, guys, he is the mighty God, the mighty God, and your ultimate hero. And through him, I'm gonna say this, nothing is impossible with him. If he can sustain everything, nothing is impossible. What are you holding on to right now that you're trying to fix that needs to be brought to the one who sustains everything? What is it that you're trying to wrestle with that is just, you know, not overcoming it? What, what kind of obstacle is standing there that you're completely defeated on your faith, that you're saying God evidently isn't, isn't capable of overcoming these things? What's in your life? Because I'm telling you, the sustainer of everything is a powerful, mighty God where, where nothing is impossible for him. I mean, just look at what Jeremiah 32 says. It says, ah, sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So here we've heard it a couple of different times in Hebrews that Jesus has a mighty power. Here in Jeremiah that he's a powerful God who made the heavens and the earth. Jesus is a mighty God. So what do we do about that? Knowing that Jesus is a mighty God and infinite in all of his power, what what are we supposed to do? How do we respond to him? What does he want from us? I think he wants from us the exact same response that a young teenage boy named David, how he responded to a giant Goliath that he had to fight on a battlefield one day. I know the story is familiar to many of you, but it, that's, the, that's the unfortunate part of it. 
When we go to stories that we think are familiar to us, then we never go back and reread them, and therefore we miss out on the true essence of what's happening there. And what you could palate and understand when you were in third grade Sunday school is totally different than what you can palate and understand today. God's word is living. There's a lot there. So in 1 Samuel chapter 17, I think this is how God would want us to respond to him in light of the fact that he is a mighty God. We find David. David's tending the sheep for his father Jesse. A couple of his brothers are out on the battlefield with King Saul, and they're, they're battling this army of the Philistines, who is a powerful, intimidating army. And in this army of the Philistines, they have larger-than-life warriors. Larger-than-life warriors, like one of them, Goliath. Not the only one, like one of them, Goliath, larger than life. Goliath, what does it mean to be larger than life? The Bible says he was nine feet tall. He wore armor on his body that weighed 125 pounds, more than some people in this room. He threw a spear that had a weight on the end, a spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. I thought, how could I illustrate that today? A spear with 15 pounds. Like, what if I brought 15 pounds up onto the stage with me and I took it and I said to somebody in the front row, like, catch the 15 pound weight. I'm not even sure I could throw 15 pounds from here to there. And if I did, the inertia behind that 15 pounds would probably break something. So I thought to myself, Jeff Baker, not a good idea for illustration. Just let the congregation imagine it. Right? 15 pounds. Can you imagine that? That's the kind of warrior they were facing. And this warrior walked down into the battlefield for 40 days in a row. And morning and night, he taunted the Israelite army. One of you guys come out and fight me. And if you win, the whole battle's over. We'll become slaves to you. But if I win, the whole battle's over and you become slaves to us. And for 40 days he does this. And the Israelite army marches down and they stand there. And the Philistine army marches down and they stand there. And Goliath comes out and guess what the Israelite army does? They turn and they run up into the hills. Well, David's sent to bring food to his brothers. That's kind of a weird thing all by itself, isn't it? Like, who in their right mind today knows that there's a war going on and says to the younger brother with no weapon, with no security, walk out onto the battlefield and bring your brother some food? That doesn't even make any sense today. But that's what they did back then. So he's bringing them some food, and while he's bringing them food, he hears Goliath defiling his God and his army and his country and his nation, and David has had it up to here, and he's ready to fight Goliath. Well, the men who are all scared of Goliath take David to the king. And they say, you got to hear, this guy is willing to fight Goliath. And here's what happens between David and King Saul. 1 Samuel 17. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told, the, told Saul the king, basically. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Paul replied. Like, there's no way on earth that you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a, he's been a man of war, you know, since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. <laughs> Sold. I'm, I'm in. Uh, you got the job. Right? That's great evidence. Like, spot number one on your job resume. I want to fight Goliath. What have you done? Oh, I've taken care of goats and sheep. But then he went on and he said this, when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. And if that animal turns on me, I catch it by its jaw and I club it to death. You got my attention now, right? Like you guys would never do that. Like a bear right there, you wouldn't go after its mouth, right? We, we've, we've been taught that, haven't we? 
Like stick it there, bite, it's gone. Like grab its tail and run, something like that. But don't go after its mouth. He goes, this is what he says at the end of this. He goes, I've done this to both lions and bears and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. For he has defiled the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claw of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. And we all went, right? Like, come on, man. Like, that's great. What, what really is going on there? What's behind the scenes inside of the heart of this teenage boy is that he has an excellent perspective of who God is. He sees God as a mighty God. Unlike the army of full-grown men with armor, spears, swords, shields. Goliath comes out, they run. Here's this boy who has none of it. But he sees God as a mighty God. And because of his faith in a mighty God, he kills the giant. And you and me are still talking about him to this day. And the psalmist reminds us of this mightiness of God, which, you know, David wrote many psalms. Okay, but one of the psalms in Psalms 24 reminds us of the mightiness of God when it says, Who is the king of glory? And the reply is, The Lord strong and mighty. If you want to read this correctly, you would go back and you would say, okay, the Lord strong and mighty. Well, then who is the king of glory? The Lord invincible in battle. This psalm was quickly turned into a song and it was used in corporate worship at the time that it was, that it was written. And it would be used in a way where the priest would say, who is the king of glory? And the congregation would say, the Lord strong and mighty. And we go back and forth like that. Why? To remind the people of this mighty God, to put their faith in him, to trust him for things like giants that they might be battling, other situations in their life that they might be facing. And every single one of you has a giant that you're facing in your life today. And if you were standing face to face on the battlefield with that giant, and I were to shout out to you, who is the king of glory? What would you say? You would say the Lord, strong and mighty, right? And if I shouted out again to you and I said, who is the king of glory? You would say what? Right. That's what you would say and you would walk into that battle and you would go, the Lord, he is strong and mighty and he's invincible. I will take this giant on. Why? Because he is a mighty God. So what giant are you facing today? Because I know this, every single one of you has one. There's nobody in this room it's not facing some giant in some capacity. It might be in an addiction. It might be in a marriage. It could be in some form of other relationships. It might be in a sickness that you're facing. It could be in some massive life decision that you're confronting. Maybe some education decision that has to be made. Some promotion that you're wrestling with job change that you're wrestling with could just be a leadership challenge that you're wrestling with i don't know and that's just the short list by the way every single one of you are facing the giant and if you're bold enough to say it every single one of us would have something to say so how, what are you supposed to do in light of the fact that god's a mighty god and we all face giants what are we supposed to do we trust in the power of a mighty god just like david did and remember, remember this about God, that the Lord is strong and mighty and that the Lord is invincible in battle. And like Jeremiah tells us that nothing is too big for God to conquer. Nothing is impossible with God. And we would call on the name of Jesus and we would march into battle knowing that he is a mighty God.
And church, that's exactly what I'm calling you to do today. I'm calling you to do that here and at a North Platte campus. That we would, we would call on the name of the Lord in, in the face of our own giants and we would walk right through the giant and we would trust the Lord to crush the giant. We would trust him to take, like David did, his little rock and his sling and to take something that doesn't seem possible to kill the giant and to kill the giant. Why? Because we have faith in a mighty, powerful God. So no matter what your giant is, let's bring it to before Jesus and let's trust in the power of a mighty God to overcome that giant. Are you with me? Let's do it. Why don't you stand with me? Lord, we trust you today. We, we trust you just like your word says in Isaiah, that you are a wonderful counselor and you are a mighty God. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us of that today. Thank you for bringing it to light today that you aren't just mighty, but, be, but you are God. And because you are God, therefore, your mightiness is greater than any other might that we could ever muster up. That your your Thunder and power and ability is so far greater than anything that we could ever imagine. Lord, we bring our giants to you today, big and small, wide and tall, intimidating, fearful, causing us to question ourselves, causing us to doubt what we're looking at, causing us to wrestle in relationships. Giants that seem like they've had a grip on our life for years and years. We bring our giant to you and we ask you, mighty, powerful God, destroy the giant before us. And by faith, Lord, we're going to march towards the giant. We're not going to try to avoid it any longer. We're not going to try to walk around it any longer. We're going to walk right through it with a faith knowing that you are stronger and more powerful than any giant that might stand before us. So in Jesus' name... Right now, Lord, I speak to the giants that are in this room. I speak to the giants that every person that's hearing my voice today is facing, and I speak to those giants in Jesus' name and command them to fall. And fall in the name of Almighty God. So, Lord, we come to worship you. Have your way in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.